Hey, it's Brian from The Lund Loop. I just need a quick moment of your time before we get into today's episode. If you're a trader, an active investor, or just someone who's interested in the stock market, The Lund Loop is for you. As a paid subscriber, you'll get daily market insights and analysis, as well as actionable trade setups from my watch list that are designed to help you identify profit opportunities. More importantly, you'll get access to our exclusive members-only Discord, where other like-minded traders and investors interact and share their knowledge in a respectful and helpful way. Basically, it's the opposite of Twitter. I would love to have you become a part of the Lundloop community. It's the best RRI you can find. So head on over to thelundloop.com and become a subscriber today. Uh, is this the Lundloop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lund Loop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, money, and life. And this is episode number 46. Can you believe it? 46 episodes of the Lund Loop Podcast. We're going to talk in a moment about a cutting edge topic ripped right from the headlines, as they used to say. We're going to talk about AI, artificial intelligence, and will that kill... Oh, I just knocked over my bottle. Will that kill the retail trader? But before we do, one of the things that I have figured out, having been a writer, or having written in the... One of the things I've figured out not being able to speak well, <laughs> I've been writing online since 2007. And one of the things I figured out after about four or five years is you never know what reaction you're going to get to a piece. And it's always the opposite. There have been times when I have labored over a piece, when I've tweaked every single sentence and moved paragraphs around and really worked on honing and crafting a piece till I thought it was exactly perfect. And then I hit publish, and all I can hear are crickets. Now, there have been other times where I just had a quick 10 minutes, let's say, before my kids were coming out of school and I was in the car and I just dashed something off really quick and I hit published and oh my God, the piece went viral and I, I people were hitting me up and asking me about it. So you never know what is going to resonate with the audience. One of the things I'm finding out is that it's the same thing with podcasts. Certain topics that I think will really resonate, no, I don't hear anything from anybody. And then some that I just throw out as an aside, I get a lot of response from. That's exactly what happened last week. Last week, I can't remember what the topic was last week, but I talked in the beginning about sleep. And I mentioned kind of offhandedly that I've never had trouble falling asleep. And not only that, I haven't really had trouble staying asleep. Well, I was shocked by how many people emailed me and asked me, well, first of all, they said, this is one of my big problems, sleep. And I think... If you watch what's been going on in society the last five, 10 years, this is a societal issue. People not being able to sleep or not getting good sleep. And it's one of those upstream habits that James Clear talks about in, the top, in Atomic Habits, where if you don't get that habit right, everything downstream gets affected. You know, if you can't sleep well and you're not rested, then when you get up, you're going to be 
you're, you're going to lag and you're not going to be focused on your work and then your work's going to suffer and then your boss is going to fire. You're going to live in a ditch, right? So a lot of people reached out and said, do you have any tips? Any tips that you can give me because I'm really struggling with sleep? And I thought about it for a minute and I said, you know, I actually do. I have some tips. So I thought I would run through some of my best practices for falling asleep quickly and for staying asleep. Some of these tips are going to be the obvious ones, the ones that you can find by Googling and there's tons of clickbaity listicles. So I'm going to give you a few of those and I'll expand upon them a bit the way I view them. But I'm going to give you one that for sure I think is going to be a unique tip, something that you probably haven't heard somewhere else. And then my final tip, not only is it going to be a game changer if you adopt it, but it's going to be super, super controversial. In fact, it may change your life uh, in ways you might want or (laughs) ways you may not want. So anyway, let's jump into it. Let's start with the obvious stuff. Number one, don't use devices one hour before you go to bed. That's iPhone, iPad, computer. Apparently, the screens for these devices emit a blue light that penetrates your cornea and stimulates your brain. So then when you try to go to sleep, your brain's like, hey, where where are we going? What are we doing? And you can't get to sleep. I read for about a half an hour or an hour before I go to bed, but I do it on a physical device called a book. Number two, don't eat too close to bedtime. Again, this is an obvious one, but it catches a lot of people by surprise. If you eat between five and six, you're naturally going to be hungry eh, three hours later, and that's often the time when people want to go to bed. The problem is if you eat at that point, the act of eating actually stimulates you and wakes you up. What's worse is the food that you put in your stomach will spend the whole night breaking down and that process creates energy and heat which will disrupt your sleep cycle. The trick is if you feel a little bit hungry before you go to bed, just go to bed because once you're asleep, your body doesn't notice the hunger anyway. All right, this one I alluded to a little bit last week, but it's super important. Try to go to bed at the exact same time every night. The reason why is you condition your body and then your body starts to understand, oh, it's getting to the point where we're going to go to sleep and it starts kind of shutting down. More importantly, optimize the amount of sleep you get. I used to think the more sleep, the better. But the fact is, if you get too much sleep, it actually has the opposite effect. The, the body goes into what could be considered like a hibernation phase, and it's tougher to get up in the morning. You feel like all logy and, and you know, just, uh. so figure out what the optimal amount of sleep is for you. I used to sleep eight or nine hours. I'd wake up just lagging. I figured out that seven is about right for me. If I do more than seven and a half, I start to get, I'm, I'm tired in the morning. If I do less than seven, I'm tired in the morning, so seven is like my my sweet spot. All right, this one kind of caught me by surprise. Try to make your room as dark as possible. Seems obvious, doesn't it? I assumed, yeah, I turned my lights off, my my room is dark. But I was surprised at how much um, surreptitious light was in my room. I'll give you an example. The power buttons on my monitors, they're illuminated. I don't know why, so I, I guess you can turn your monitor on in the dark. So there was light coming from those. My laptop, which is in my room, the plug, the end of the plug has a little light ring on it, which again, I guess so that you can plug it in in the dark. I have a extra router 
uh, like a Google um, home Wi-Fi router. That's got a light on it. There's lots of little sources of light in the room that you sleep probably that you don't even know about. Of course, the big one is nature. If there's a half moon, a full moon, you're going to get lots of light coming into your room. So make sure you got a good curtain that filters that out and make sure you're killing all the little sources of light that are in your room that maybe you're not aware of. All right, so now we're going to get to one that I think is is kind of a unique one. I got to I got to preface this by saying I like to listen to things when I go to bed. I usually will put on a podcast or a song or a even sometimes like a video from uh YouTube. I'll just listen to the audio and I'll put the timer on for 30 minutes. And at 30 minutes, it goes off. I almost never make it past 10 or 15 minutes into these these uh, clips. And what I figured out was your brain associates certain behaviors with certain pieces of audio based upon how you conditioned it. I figured this out like 10 years ago when someone suggested playing instrumental music when I when I wrote. And so I found this piece. It's an hour-long piece. It's instrumental only. It's very rhythmic. It's very hypnotic. And I would play it when I was writing. And I found after a while, it really focused my concentration. And so when I would be writing something and I was kind of drifting, I would put this on and my, it would tell my brain, hey, now it's time to, to focus. The same thing happens with these clips when, it, when you're going to sleep. If you listen to certain clips uh, before you go to sleep, your brain starts to associate those clips with it's time to sleep. I've got three or four that are like my favorites. One of them is a is a YouTube video that's a discussion about Leon Trotsky, right? Uh, I put put it on. I put the timer for 30 minutes. I can never make it past 10 minutes. So start listening to either music, clips, podcasts, whatever, as you go to bed. Put your timer on. Within a couple of weeks, your brain will start associating those with going to sleep. And what's really great is if you happen to wake up in the middle of the night, like let's say you wake up at three in the morning and you can't get back to sleep within five or 10 minutes, just put one of those clips on. And I can almost guarantee you'll go out before you get halfway through the clip. All right. So this is the final piece. This is the big controversy, right? This is the one that, that everyone's going to go, I don't know, Brian, but it's the big one. And it is a game changer. If you have a partner do not sleep in the same bed with that partner. I get it. Hard to believe. It's hard to challenge conventional wisdom. <laughs> hard to say to your partner, you're not going to do it. But let's just think about this from a totally lot. Let's just think about this like from a trader standpoint, from total logic. If there was some evil genius whose sole goal was to disrupt the way human beings sleep, what would they suggest? I think they would suggest this. They would say, hey, let's put a hundred plus pound person in bed next to you. Someone that will move all night, that will fight with you for blankets, that will make noise, someone that will create heat. They may snore. They may get up in the middle of the night. There's absolutely no reason to have somebody else in the same bed as you. It's the worst thing you can do for a good night's sleep. I have not slept in the same bed with my wife for 10 years. Here's how it came about. My, I think my son was like two or three and he was sick and he was crying in his room, crying in his room. My wife finally went, got him, brought him into our bed for the night. 
it was a horrible night of sleep for me because he was tossing and turning and crying and hot. And I told her, I said, I can't do this tomorrow night. I, I, I was totally beat when I woke up. I, I have, she said, just go upstairs and sleep in a different bedroom. It's okay. No big deal. I'll take care of it. So I did that for a couple of days, uh, was about ready to come back. And then my daughter got sick. And so she was in the bedroom. So for about a week, I slept upstairs in a separate bedroom and I fucking loved it. <laughs> it was so great. I slept so good. Not only that, but my wife doesn't like to listen to things when she's trying to go to sleep. I do. So I could play my podcast. I could play my music. And uh, 10 years later, we've never gone back to the same bed. We have, we're fortunate enough, we have two master bedrooms in our house. So I have one, she has the other, and it is goddamn great. So um, highly suggest that. You know, it used to be that couples didn't sleep in the same bed. I remember when I was a kid, I would go to my grandparents' house and they had two twin beds, separate twin beds. For hundreds of years, that's the way it was. And it was actually thought of as more of a forward-thinking modern way to sleep. You had your own area that you slept in and you didn't bother the other person. Somewhere in the late 60s or 70s, that went away and everyone went back into the same bed. So look, I get it's tough. Sometimes your partner's not going to go for that. But think about it, you know, like for some of us, it might be a good trade-off, right? Divorce, but really good sleep. Uh, is this the blunt loop? AI, artificial intelligence. It's all anybody's been talking about the last few months. And in the trading and investing community, there's been this question that's kind of been bubbling around. People are wondering, how is AI going to disrupt retail traders, retail investors. I was on a Spaces last week, and this was a question that somebody brought up, and they said, what is going to happen when AI is prevalent throughout the financial industry? What happens when machines are just trading against one another, and they're using perfect strategies, and they don't care about any external news, or they're just going for price? And this is a big concern, especially when it comes to something called co-location trading. Co-location trading involves taking the servers owned by a high-frequency trading firm or a proprietary trading firm and literally putting it right next to the servers of the exchange. This enables these firms to access stock prices before the rest of the investing public, and it gives them an advantage. Now, let me give you an example. So I'm going to read a press release that was put out by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME. It says, The CME, the world's largest and most diverse financial exchange, announced today that it will begin offering customer firms the opportunity to connect their co-located trading servers to the CME over high-speed fiber optic connections. These redundant server connections are expected to decrease network latency times for order entry to CME Globex to less than 200 microseconds. Now, just for context, a microsecond is one millionth of a second. All right, the press release continues. CME Managing Director of Products and Service Rick Redding said, Through this co-location offering, there is now an ultra-low latency solution for market makers and high-frequency traders who conduct trading strategies where execution speeds are critical. This latest service underscores our ongoing commitment to ensure that our members have a range of customized alternatives to support their specific connectivity requirements. All right. 
Let's hold on this for a second and we'll go back to it. I've been given a lot of thought about what could happen when AI is prevalent throughout the financial services industry. And I think in order to get a framework framework of what could happen, we've got to look at some other industries that are going to probably be disrupted by AI. The first one, and the one that's the most obvious, is writing, writing content. I've been writing content online and for different outlets since 2007, so I have a little bit of experience in this area. And so here's the way I think AI is going to impact that that field. I would say 85% of the content out there, the marketing content, the copy, the articles, they're just really bad. And so I feel like 85% of the writers out there are going to lose their job because AI is going to be able to totally replace that sort of writing, that whole mediocre center. But about 15% of writing is really good. And that means 15% of writers out there are going to keep their jobs. They're going to keep their jobs because they know how to be creative. They know how to craft a story. They know how to be engaging. They have certain techniques that you just can't replicate from AI. And what's going to happen is they're only going to be competing against this mediocrity. So they're going to be more valuable. They're going to have more leverage. They're going to be able to charge more. They're going to be able to attract more followers. So the cream is going to rise to the top and a lot of people are going to lose their job, but some people will still be employed as writers. I think the same thing is going to happen when it comes to programming and coding. I don't really know a lot about coding, but I have a lot of friends in that space and they tell me that it is primed to be disrupted by AI. There was an article that was posted on Twitter a couple weeks back where a company was talking about a use case. They needed some work done for their platform They asked a a pretty good programmer for a quote. He said it would take two weeks and cost $5,000. They ended up having it done with ChatGPT in 11 seconds. That's pretty disruptive. So I think, again, 85% of coders and programmers probably going to be out of work, but there will still be that 15% that will have their jobs because of some of the reasons I talked about for writers. So how does that translate to the stock market? I think you're going to have a similar dynamic. You're going to see 80 or 85% of the people that are retail traders get blown out. The casuals, the dilettantes. And again, this is not unusual. Every time there is a big bull market, a lot of people start trading. People that wouldn't normally trade. It happened in the late 90s with the internet boom. It happened in the run-up to the financial crisis. It happened in COVID. It's just a cycle that happens. And What's going to happen is the 15 or 20% that are left, they're going to have to adapt. They're going to have to get better. And I think a good framework to explain this is poker. A lot of people think that trading is gambling. And they say that the stock market is a casino. Those people are stupid. Trading is more like poker because poker is the one casino game that actually has an element of skill. And if you are skillful and use money management and are consistent, over time you'll make money. Same thing in the market, same thing with trading. When I was in uh, my mid-20s, back in the 90s, I used to play at a casino called Hawaiian Gardens out here with a buddy. We used to go every week and we would play limit poker. And limit poker, as the name suggests, means that there's only a maximum that you can bet on any round. And we played limit poker and we were fairly successful at it. And then something happened. In 2003, a guy named Chris Moneymaker 
won the main event at the World Series of Poker. He won $2.5 million. And what was significant about that was he was a total amateur. He was not a professional. He had entered into a, I think, a $5 satellite tournament. And as the winner of that, he got a $10,000 buy-in into the main event. And he beat all these professionals. All of a sudden, everybody and their brother wanted to play poker. Because they were thinking, well, if this guy can win $2.5 million and he was just a, you know, a, a amateur player, why couldn't I do it? I've been playing in my home game. I kind of know a little bit of this. And all of a sudden, these card clubs got packed. And the dynamic changed. Instead of people being pushed off their hand when you bet the maximum on a card in limit poker, these newbies, these people didn't know how to play, these people that were more uh, gamble-gamble, they were like, they would stay all the way to the river. So you couldn't employ strategy or the strategy that you used before didn't work. So my buddy and I, we switched. We went to a different game, 816 Pot Limit Omaha. A little bit higher limit game. That worked for a while, but then people figured out that game and everybody stayed to the river and the edge went away. Then you had to start being more selective on which table you sat at. You'd have to kind of scope the tables out and you'd see... Where is the table that has the loose players? Instead of just getting assigned a table, you would tell the, the floor manager, like, hey, can I have that table when the seat opens up? And you would pick these spots, and then you would have to game the individual people at the table to see who's strong, who's weak, who can I beat, who do I have to stay away from? Then it got to be you had to pick the casino because certain casinos had a reputation for having looser players, and certain casinos had reputations for tighter players. So instead of going to Hawaiian Gardens, maybe you had to go to the Bicycle Club or maybe you had to go to the Commerce Club. It even got to the point where you would have to time when you played because there was this dynamic where some guys would play during the day before they went to their night shift. And if you caught them in the last hour before they left, they would oftentimes be very loose because maybe they were on a losing streak and they had a couple hundred bucks left and they're like, screw it. I'm going to just blow it out before I go to my my job. You also have the opposite effect. You'd have people that would come in at one o'clock that just got off their night shift and they would have a couple beers and they would get loose. So the point is, is you had to adapt not only in the style of how you played, but the game you played and the venue which you played in. That's what traders are going to have to do once AI is very prevalent. They're going to have to figure out, is my strategy working? No, then I have to modify my strategy. Maybe I have to trade different products, right? They're going to just have to figure out something that works like traders have always had to do throughout the history of markets. Now, one of the things I think is interesting about this is lately I've been trying to learn more about VWAP. And I think VWAP is a strategy that is somewhat... AI proof. And the reason I say that is because no matter what happens in the future, big organizations are going to have to move money in and out of the market. If Fidelity wants to take a position, if a big ETF or a hedge fund or a, a pension fund wants to take a position, they can't just place an order and hit the button because the size is so big, they will move price and they will get filled at a horrible price. So they hire people, hire firms to execute their orders over time, over hours, days, weeks, sometimes even months. If you're moving 10, hundreds, even billions of dollars in and out of the market, you have to do it over time. And that's where that parent-child order relationship really comes into play. The parent order is, hey, by 
five million shares of this stock, but you can't do it all at once. So you break it up into these child orders. That's where VWAP comes in. So no matter what happens, that dynamic's still going to be there. So there's still going to be ways that retail traders can take advantage of things. And you still may be asking, well, that's great for now, but what happens when it is finally machine against machine and technology against technology? How will the retail trader have any edge whatsoever? Well, remember that press release I read about co-location from the CME? That press release went out in October of 2006. Machines have been trading against machines for 20 years. Technology has been played against technology for 20 years, and the retail trader has still had a place in the market. I think they always will. They're just going to have to be adaptable like they've always had to be. But who cares what I think? Why aren't we asking this question of AI itself? Well, that's exactly what I did. I asked three AI engines, Notions, Bard, which is Google's AI engine, and of course, ChatGPT. I asked them all this question. Will AI kill the retail trader? Well, let's see what they said. Notion was the most clear on this. It said, no, AI is not going to kill the retail stock trader, but it will change the way they trade. AI can also be used to provide real-time insights into market conditions, which can help retail traders make more informed decisions. However, AI is not a replacement for human judgment, and retail traders will still need to be able to think critically and make independent decisions. All right, so according to Notion AI, we're good. Bard went a little bit deeper. Bard actually listed out some challenges that AI has in, in terms of being successful uh, in trading. So it starts off by saying, there are a number of challenges that need to be addressed in order for AI to be used effectively in the retail trading space. These challenges include, one, the need for high quality data. AI systems need to be trained on large amounts of high quality data in order to be effective. This data can be expensive and difficult to obtain. Number two, the need for accurate algorithms. AI systems need to be able to generate accurate trading signals in order to be successful. This can be difficult to achieve as market conditions are constantly changing. And number three, the need for human judgment. AI systems are not perfect and they can make mistakes. Retail traders will still need to be able to think critically and make independent decisions in order to be successful. And then it sums it up. It says, overall, AI has the potential to improve the performance of retail stock traders. However, there are a number of challenges that need to be addressed in order for AI to be used effectively in this space. All right, so two for two, right? We got two AI engines and they're both saying, hey, don't sweat it. You know, it's it's going to help a little bit, but it's not going to not going to really threaten um, human traders. And then, of course, I went to the king. I went to ChatGPT, and I asked ChatGPT the same question. Will artificial intelligence kill the retail stock trader? Here's what it said. Artificial intelligence has already made significant inroads into the world of finance and investing, and there is no doubt it will continue to play an increasingly important role in the industry. However, they all use the however transition. However, it is unlikely that AI will completely replace retail stock traders anytime soon. While AI can process vast amounts of data and identify patterns that humans may miss, it is not capable of replicating the intuition 
and creativity that human traders bring to the table. Aww. Moreover, stock trading involves more than just analyzing data. It also requires an understanding of market dynamics, global events, and human behavior. These are factors that AI struggles to comprehend fully. And then it wraps it up. It says, in conclusion, AI is a powerful tool that can assist retail stock traders, but it is unlikely to replace them altogether. Retail traders who can harness the power of AI and use it to enhance their skills and knowledge will likely remain valuable in the industry. So we're three for three. We've got three AI engines, all of which are reassuring us that retail traders are not going anywhere anytime soon, that AI is not a threat, that we don't have to panic. The only problem is all three of these AI engines are free. And you know what they say, you get what you pay for. So I decided to pay for the premium version of ChatGPT. And I asked it the exact same question, will artificial intelligence kill the retail stock trader? Unfortunately, the paid version gave me a little bit different answer. The answer was, oh yeah, you guys are fucked. Um. I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.